Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a very well-known passage. Um, it's been sort of um, emblazoned on many a tea towel and many um, uh, a calendar. But it comes with a health warning as a consequence. We have to be really careful when we come to verses like this. We do have to do a little bit of deconstruction so that we're not making some of the mistakes that may be associated with a passage that we think we know quite well. And you notice here, it actually occurs at the end of a letter to a church. So we do have to make sure that we get the context right. And only when we've done those things well can we really begin to see what these glorious verses are really getting at. So we're going to do that together before we properly get into it. But before we do that, let's pray for God's help. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for your word. Thank you for uh, these verses that we all know um, and love so well and so much. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that uh, scripture is wonderfully simple, but... Lord God, I pray that tonight we would be warmed again by these incredible encouragements that we read here in Philippians. But help us as well, Heavenly Father, to see um, something new, um, something that you were teaching the Philippian church, which is so important to us as a church now. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us as we look at your word. Thank you so much for your goodness to us in your strong name. Amen. So, um, basic backstory to what's going on. The Philippian church... Um, as recorded in Acts 16, this is where um, it is birthed. The Apostle Paul, responding to the Macedonian call, heads to the capital, Philippi, whereupon he finds some women in the district meeting up to pray by the riverside. And one of those is Lydia, the seller of purple that we all know and hear about. And it's recorded that she was already a worshipper of God, but not yet a follower of Christ. So Paul leads her to the Lord, and the church in Philippi was born. And as with a number of these churches, churches established by Paul in Acts and by others were allowed to jump several years ahead and see how these churches are really doing. And that's exactly what we get to see here in Philippians. Let's turn to chapter 1. And um, this is where we get to see how well this church is doing. Chapter 1, verse um, 3 to 7. I thank my God, says Paul, in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The Philippian church are doing really well. Paul loves this church. This is a famous prayer of his, isn't it? The Philippians bring joy to Paul because they are unashamed partners with him in the gospel. This means almost certainly, and this is quite rare for Paul if you read some of his other letters, that the Philippians are public supporters of Paul for the sake of the gospel. Verse 7, they support him in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The Philippians are with him. This is great. This is high, joyful, positive, gospel-encouraging rhetoric. But all is not perfect 
As much as the Philippian church is strong, there is something that Paul is concerned about. And we read of this concern in what is the summary passage for the entire book. Chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. Let's just read that to get it into our minds. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is Paul's concern for the church in Philippi? That they would stand firm. That's his command. Stand firm, guys, in one spirit, with one mind, striving as one person for the sake of the gospel. It seems then that the church in Philippi may be beginning to break apart. Paul's charge would not be needed if the church was already standing firm, being of one mind, striving as one person. It seems, therefore, that disunity is creeping into the church. And why is that? What is the problem with the church in Philippi? Well, it's because I think they're feeling pressures from the world. There's maybe a hint that they're beginning to crack under this pressure. Some in the church, it seems, may be tempted to wriggle out of these pressures of being Christians in a non-Christian world, and they want to flee the church. Some in the church may even be beginning to say that suffering for the kingdom is wrong. Christ wouldn't allow that. What does Paul say? Don't take in the idea that you're not meant to feel the heat for the gospel, he says. Verse 29. Indeed, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, which these guys are wonderfully, but also to suffer for his sake. No, says Paul, you are not to duck gospel pressure, as some people may be saying to you. As a church, you're meant to face it. And the only way you are going to be able to face pressure as a church and come out of it the other side intact is if you are united. That's the message of Philippians to stand firm as a church, to keep united as a church, so that you can endure the pressure that you will be under as a church for the sake of Christ and of his gospel. And that brings us beautifully into our chapter, chapter 4. Let's read verse 1. This is the summary again of the entire book. Look at what Paul's summary is. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord. And chapter, verse 2 of chapter 4 shows us the very example of why Paul has to write that, why Paul has to write this letter. Verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, Paul's summary is to stand firm in the Lord because there are significant people in the church who aren't. There are significant godly people in the church, people in the church who have been with Paul through thick and thick, who are quarreling with each other and by implication could tear the church apart. Don't let that slide, says Paul. Get them to agree in the Lord and to be united so that the church may stand firm in the midst of real pressure. Then we get to our passage, 
And does that not now flavor this very famous tea towel passage that we come to tonight in a very particular way? See, the reason tonight's passage is so well known, the reason why it's it's printed on many different things, is because it's wonderful to know. That's great. It's good to know that in anxious situations I can go to a good God and find real peace. It's wonderful news and a genuine help. These passages don't need to be complicated. I'm not knocking that. But I cannot get to the heart of tonight's passage if I have not understood its context. And that's what the tea towel, unfortunately, misses out. And so with the backstory of Philippians in our minds, isn't it interesting that the very next phrase after Euodia and Syntyche's argument in the church is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord comes after this incredible squabble. You see, rejoice isn't exhorted in isolation. As much as I can rejoice in the Lord in any situation I find myself, that's true. This rejoice is exhorted in contrast to Euodia and Syntyche. In other words, don't be like them, angry at each other and quarrelsome. Be joyful in the Lord and be reasonable. That brings us to our first point of two tonight. Replace attitudes of quarreling with joy and reasonableness. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. You see, this wonderful passage of love, joy, peace, and encouragement that we read of here is written not merely as an encouragement, but almost as a command. Rejoice twice. Whenever Paul, or Jesus for that matter, says things twice, it's usually because it's a command. The double imperative gives it that force. As opposed to looking inwards, in other words, like Euodia and Syntyche arguing with each other in the church, look outwards, beyond yourselves, rejoice in the Lord. And Paul is saying this to the entire church. It's worth a pause at this moment to say that we are probably a church full of quarrelers and fusspots. And I echo Paul not disingenuously when I say that I am probably the worst of offenders. Ask Robin and Andy, they have to work with me. And I know that we are slightly quarrelsome. We know that at points in our church lives because we're human. On top of being human, we're also Christians, and we feel the pressure from the world, especially as we're all thrown together in this church, rubbing shoulders with people that we would never be around or would never choose to be around in any normal walk of everyday life. And we grate on each other. And if we're honest, we don't even have to look at the church to know that this is true. Just look at our own families I quarrel with my son Toby all the time, and he's nine months. He can't even argue back, and I still get frustrated. It is amazing how angry I get with someone who can't even form an opinion. It's incredible. And it's true that if I cannot be unified or united in my own tiny family of three, one of whom who chose to be with me for the whole of her life, the other one who has no say in the matter, how on earth can I expect to think I'm not going to struggle in this area of unity with, with you guys? with a much larger, much more diverse group of people in my church. And so we come to this well-known passage with a proper sense of realism. This is a command for me to rejoice in the Lord because my heart may not be right with someone in this room, in this church family. I am in danger, therefore, if I am not careful of letting some petty things or some big things come between me and one of you, which may not just cause unwanted tension in our church family and be unhelpful, 
but can actually threaten to take this entire church out. And I am not being hyperbolic. This is exactly the situation that Paul is talking into. The countless stories we could all tell of churches that we know that have buckled under the weight of one pair of warring elders, or one pair of battling congregants, or one pair of embittered families. That is all it takes to bring a good, strong church to its knees. And remember, the church of Philippi is a good, strong church, one of Paul's strongest churches, perhaps, and yet a deadlocked couple of women could get rid of it all in a heartbeat. Oh, this passage of encouragement is not just an encouragement. It is a severe warning in a time of real stress into a situation that is in a swelling environment of potential disaster as a safe, sound church potentially teeters on the brink. Do not assume that this could not happen to us. Are we as a church rejoicing in the Lord? Or are we seeking after ourselves, causing spoken or unspoken quarrels in the church that could threaten to take us out? And remember, too, that this is all written in the midst of real pressure because of the gospel. Paul effectively says to the Philippians, disunity is even more dangerous and will be more prevalent when we get real flack because of the gospel. It is at those times of real gospel attack, born off the back of perhaps real gospel growth, where I need to be the most vigilant in my relationships with you. That is the time where Satan is going to choose to tear us apart and remove charm as church as a faithful gospel witness. But look at Paul's remedy. It is a phenomenal one in that regard. Rejoice in the Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, the Lord is the reason that we're all here. He's the one that unites us. Am I more bothered by what that person thinks of me, or am I more bothered by the Lord Jesus? Replace your quarrelsomeness and your division with rejoicing in Christ. The reason for your unity. And this isn't like-for-like replacement. Rejoicing in the Lord is so much better than maintaining disunity. Philippians itself shows that. What does the Lord do for the church? Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what the Lord has achieved for us. Future transformation, because he is our saviour. The Lord has achieved for this church and its members a new citizenship that isn't wrapped up in our earthly quarrels. It's all based and protected in the future. And so I can rejoice. I can rejoice in Christ because of what he has achieved for me. And my focusing on Christ lifts my eyes from my issue with you and more to him. Joy is a funny word, isn't it? We, we don't really use it um, in common parlance very much. And, and this is a helpful aside. Be warned as we go through this whole passage that we have to relinquish the idea of subjective feelings and emotions for the moment. This isn't feel happy in the Lord. Happiness is a very vague, changeable emotion that's very much dependent on circumstance. And the circumstances which Paul is writing into aren't great. Paul is talking about joy. The idea of contentment, irrespective of circumstance. Because Christ has sorted out a much greater issue in my life than the quarrel or pressure that I face. And that is, he has sorted out my salvation and my eternity. 
And in the midst of gospel pressure, in the midst of hostility, I can turn to the Lord and rejoice in him. He is the only thing in this entire passage that is remotely consistent and unchangeable. It makes sense then, doesn't it? That the first word after Euodia and Syntyche's quarrel is in fact rejoice. Remember who you are, in other words. Remember who Christ is. Remember what the church is for. The church is to be a united witness in a world that is bitterly divided. That's why Jesus throws us all together. That's how gospel witness is achieved. We look so very different. We look so very odd. There must be something that holds that ragtag group of weirdos together. Well, there is. It's Christ. So rejoice in him who holds this ragtag group of weirdos together. And it makes sense, doesn't it, before we move on? That if I lift my eyes to Jesus rejoicing in him, then my gentleness in the NIV, or my reasonableness here, my desire, in other words, to not want to quarrel, should be evident to everyone around me. Rejoice in the Lord, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In the middle of this mess between these two women, what would be the most astonishing outcome from the church that would actually have an immediate, quite profound impact on the church? For them to both back down publicly. For them to both agree in the Lord, to treat each other with gentleness and with respect. That would have an immense impact on the church. What a tangible difference that would make. And if that isn't its own application point for us tonight, then I don't know what is. Philippians isn't difficult. We are, very simply, to show public gentleness, public reasonableness, which apparently is a word, to those who we disagree with, so that we don't take the church out. In other words, let's cut each other from slack. Let's work hard at getting along. Let's seek to agree in the Lord. Let things that can lie, lie. Are we all doing this? Or are we bearing grudges? And our starting point for all of this is to lift our eyes off ourselves and onto Christ as we rejoice in him. And so we can be reasonable and show it publicly to everyone as we look on the person who unites us, Jesus Christ. But very quickly, um, note there, there seems to be this interjection from Paul. He places it at the end of this verse and at the beginning of the next one. It's its own sentence. The Lord is at hand. It's hard to know exactly what Paul means by this. Some people think it it means he's physically close to them. Some people say it's that the Lord is coming soon. And and all those things are true in and of themselves. But, But I think basically it's the motivation for how we are able to treat each other with reasonableness. Guys, the Lord is near you. He's watching you, if you like. He's not distant from your struggles, your pressures, your personal quarrels. This is his church. He knows what's going on. Let your reasonableness and your gentleness be made public because the Lord is at hand. Be aware that you are the church of Christ. In Ephesians, which we'll be starting next week on Sunday mornings, we'll be looking at just how enormous and magnificent the church of Christ is. It's the most important institution in the world. Treat each other with that view of church in mind. Not with the view that we're a social club that merely meets on a Sunday for a good chat, but that we're the bride of Christ. The institution through which God delivers his incredible mission for the lost. An institution whose founder, the Lord God, is at hand, fully involved in his church's business. 
Therefore, act like that is true, knowing the Lord is near in the way that you seek to be united with each other very publicly by rejoicing in him. Secondly, and lastly tonight, replace anxiety with God's peace through expectant, grateful prayer. Tonight is the uh, last on the mini-series we've been doing, um, as Davy said, in soul-searching prayer. And the more astute among you will have noticed that I've not mentioned prayer yet. Well, here it is. Let's read it together, verses 6 to 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is a big problem in the West. Um, I did some research on this and discovered that Brits and Americans are some of the most anxious people in the world. And we could spend the next few minutes trawling through stats of the kind of things that we're anxious about and how we deal with them. But, but we know what they are, don't we? We are all very anxious people. This passage is heavily applicable, highly appropriate in our culture. And that's why I think this passage is so well known and highly replicated. We are a heavily anxious group of people. Jesus calls the crowds harried and helpless. That's a bit like what we are. From being anxious about our families, our children, our friendships, our jobs, our security, our health, our futures. Some of you are sitting here tonight just reading this passage. It's like water to your soul. Or you're sitting here thinking, I just wish this was true. This passage is of enormous help to us in everyday, anxious, stressful situations. And what an incredible truth we are just about to learn about what we're able to do in these times of incredible anxiety. But before we get there, again, what's the context of Philippians? We have a church that is threatening to disunite and to break apart. And if the church in Philippi is breaking at the seams from disunity, can you imagine how anxious people must have been feeling? For those of us who have seen churches split, we see the anxiousness in people. That's primarily what Paul is speaking into here. The anxiousness brought about by disunity. Interestingly, one of the things most people in the West are anxious about, so I read, and I wouldn't necessarily have thought this, is losing community. Whether it be the fear of losing close friendships or family members, being separated from loved ones, falling out with neighbors, these things put together outweigh the anxiety of money, jobs, success, or comfort. And so the anxiousness caused by church disunity to the Christian can be extra specially hard. And so how is this anxiousness dealt with? Well, it is dealt with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, presenting our requests to God. It's wonderfully simple. Church, in your anxiousness, pray. But is it obvious? In other words, church, in your anxiousness, do you pray? In my prep for this talk, I came across the following headline paragraph in a newspaper, and it said this. Laugh a deep ho-ho from your belly and circle your waist. The instructor said, patting her big tummy as she wobbled it around. Midway through my university degree, I found myself at a laughing yoga class in a dank North London parish hall with my two housemates. We stood in a circle, jiggling our bellies, uncomfortably forcing loud laughter for two long minutes before moving on to another laughing exercise. Why were we there? Because we hoped it would help mitigate the anxiety we each suffered from to varying degrees. Hilarious. And and slightly weird. And who knows, it may have been genuinely helpful. And for those who suffer with genuine anxiety disorders, these classes are not to be knocked. That's not my point. My point is, 
when facing times of anxiousness as a church or as individuals, what is the first thing I turn to? Is it belly laughing or is it prayer? The Philippian church is under the cosh, fraying slightly at the edges, feeling the rub of the world, feeling the antagonism of divisive people in the church and seeing good godly women at loggerheads with each other. It's an anxious time for many different reasons. What does Paul tell them to do? To pray. In response to quarreling, he says rejoice. In response to anxiousness, he says pray. Let prayer be your first response, not your last resort. Let prayer be your knee-jerk reaction. Let prayer, verse 6, concern everything. The one thing that is really going to begin to help you in your anxiety is prayer. And what is it the Philippians are to pray? Well, firstly, with supplication. That is asking God for his help. Supplication has the idea of presenting God with the situation at hand. Lord, this is what is going on in our church. It's really tough at the moment. We're being hard-pressed on every side. We can't seem to work out how to fix it. Help us. Help my relationship with that person I really struggle with. That's supplication. Telling the Lord what's going on and asking for his help. Wonderfully, he already knows what's going on. Indeed, the Lord is at hand. He's fully aware. We're not telling him something new. But he still wants us to literally speak it to him. We have a communicative relationship. Just as I would go home to Jen in the evening and tell her everything, I do the same with Christ. And it's not a fruitless exercise. It is the speaking through of our situation to the God who knows all things. And that is fully showing our dependence on him, isn't it? Neither is it an exercise in therapy where we all tell God how we feel and what's going on like we're sitting on his couch and it somehow becomes something that's merely cathartic. It is praying to the God of the universe. I am talking to a God who knows how to help. Do we as a church do this? Do we pray earnestly, speaking the things that worry us to God? Do we pray earnestly for our unity as a church in the light of difficulty? Do we ask God for his help in these things? In our anxious situations as a church, is prayer our first response? And this letter is sent to a whole church, remember. Are we doing this together, corporately? The second thing the Philippians church is to pray is with thanksgiving. We might get our head around the idea of asking God for help, but I bet you folded money that if we are going to forget anything as a church in our prayers, especially in the midst of real difficulty, it is thankfulness. And thankfulness is such an important part of our prayer life. If we as a church are thanking God in our prayers, and there are many things to be thankful for, his salvation plan for our lives, his son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to die for his church, the riches that we have as sons and heirs as his church, our status as his bride, his redemption plan through eternity, which establishes the church mighty and powerful as an army with banners against which the devil himself cannot prevail. There's so much to give thanks to God for as a church. And the only way we can be fully thankful is if we're looking at Jesus and remembering what he has done and seeing how much we have been blessed by the gospel. In doing that, suddenly I'm slowly unwrapping myself from my own difficult situation and looking not at that, but at Jesus. 
suddenly my outlook on my own situation, the difficulties that we face as a church, they don't go away, but they are given a different perspective. I see them in a different light. I see them in the light of God's eternal plan, in the light of his sovereignty, in the light of his bigness, in the light of his goodness. Being thankful forces me to confront a good, loving, powerful, mighty God in the midst of real, genuine, difficult anxiety. And that is the means by which we get real peace. A peace that really affects the heart. And don't take my word for it. Let's see it in action. Because this pattern of prayer, speaking out our situation to God, asking for his help, remembering his goodness with thankfulness, and going away with godly peace, is exactly what we see in the Psalms all the time. Let's take one as an example. Psalm 69. Feel free to turn to it if you want. Psalm 69, verses 1 to 2, David says this, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary for crying out. Real anguish and real anxiety. And the psalmist tells God what is going on and how much he needs his help. Then down to verse 13, But, says David, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. Where does David turn to in his day of trouble? The Lord. That's his first response. That's his knee-jerk reaction. He prays to the Lord. Then verse 16, further on. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. What does David remember about the Lord? That he is steadfastly loving. That he is eternally merciful. So he knows his prayer is not falling on deaf in different ears. And as he remembers how good his God is in his own distress, it is then he's able to say in verse 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. David is able to thank the Lord in his distress because God's steadfast love for him and his abundant mercy is bigger than his own situation. Therefore, he's able to say right at the end, up to his neck, quite literally in trouble and difficulty, verse 32. When the humble see this God, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. The entire process of this prayer, this prayer of supplication, of remembrance, of thanksgiving, has left David with a changed heart, a heart that is revived. Philippians 4, verse 7, And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your heart. That's what happens to David. His heart is now guarded like a garrison of soldiers fenced around it, protecting it from the emotions of doubt and fear that he's facing. Because he has prayed expectantly and thankfully to a loving, powerful God, asking him for help. How is David able to be at peace in his terrible situation? We don't know in practical terms. It goes beyond our understanding. But he is. Which means that this peace is obviously more than a transitory feeling or an emotion. It is the peace that tells the heart you're eternally safe in an eternally loving God. Has David's situation changed? Absolutely not. 
Does he now go about dealing with a situation of feelings of happiness and euphoria? Absolutely not. This prayer isn't magic. It's better than that. It's real. He's talking to a real God who really understands and who is really near and says to your heart, you're mine. You're okay. You're safe. And nothing can separate you from my love. And in the middle of my real anxiety, I'm in my emotions. That's what I need to hear. That's what guards my heart and my mind. In the light of all of this, why is prayer not our knee-jerk reaction in times of anxiety if it isn't? As the words of the hymn that we will be singing just in a little bit say... Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. This peace with the head knowledge and the DNA heart knowledge of the love of God guards me. David has replaced anxiety with the peace that tells the heart that you are eternally safe in an eternally loving God. Indeed, post-cross, as Philippians reminds us now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, this peace that guards our hearts and our minds is in Christ. And is he not the epitome of a steadfastly loving, abundantly merciful God? Philippians 2, this Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is the God in whom I find real peace. In Christ, who really identifies with my suffering. We do have to be so careful with this passage. Because it is not prayer in and of itself that gives me peace. It is the God that I pray to that gives me peace. But we do that through prayer. It is the means by which we get peace. Through my praying to the right person, to this magnificent God of eternity in Christ, I can access real peace. Not happiness, necessarily. Not elation, not complacency, not even denial, not a changeable emotion. Peace. Real peace. It's the kind of peace that affects my heart despite how I feel. It's the peace that settles over me in my anxiousness. It's the peace that the psalmist goes away with, still with his fear of facing his enemies, still with his difficulties of having to work out what to do and how to do it. But it is that peace that guards the psalmist's heart from buckling under the enormity of his anxiety, and he rests on God. It is the peace that changes your view of the situation that you find yourself in. It is the peace then that doesn't change your circumstances and sorts out your problem like a magic wand. It is a peace that guards your heart again from caving into anxiety and under disunity and under pressure as a church from the world. It is the peace of God from the God of peace found in Christ. It is a peace from God that says to your heart, if I have your eternity sorted, I've got this day sorted. It is a peace that says of God, I know what you are going through and I am with you in it. 
Isn't it great that the Bible doesn't tell us that we need to replace anxiety with happiness? Or that we need to stop feeling real emotions in the midst of real difficulty? The Bible doesn't say that. Praise the Lord. Because if it did, we'd all be wrecks. Because we could not do that. We're all genuinely emotionally struggling. The Bible does not tell us to stop being human. What the Bible does tell us is that we can know a true peace that passes our understanding found in Christ. And it is in Christ as we close we come full circle tonight. You see, the God that we pray to is this humanly personified person in Jesus, detailed in all his humble glory in Philippians 2. Jesus, who is both the source of peace and stability for a church that is threatening to fall apart, and who is, by his incredible humility, also the example by which this church needs to follow if it is to be united. We need to be humble with each other like Christ. Our reasonableness with each other is possible because Christ's example of incredible humility shows us how we should live with each other. And real peace in the midst of anxiety is possible because of Christ's death and his resurrection, which tells my heart that I am safe, guards my heart and my mind from giving in under the weight of intense pressure. What helps you, Odia and Syntyche? What helps our church's internal quarreling? Rejoicing in that Christ and treating each other reasonably. What helps the church's anxiety? By us corporately praying to God and receiving his peace, which is found in Christ. This prayer in Philippians 4-7 to is a prayer for us as a church to be unified. And as we've seen with the psalmist, as much as it is written to the church, of course we read this privately and individually. What helps me in my personal issues with other people rejoicing in Christ and treating others reasonably? What helps me in my personal struggles with all the things that I am terribly anxious about? Praying to God and receiving his peace, which surpasses all understanding, which is found in Christ. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father God, we thank you so very much for your goodness to us in the gospel. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and all the things we learn about here in Philippians. Thank you for his humility. Thank you that he died for us. And thank you so much for your incredible peace. Thank you that in the midst of real anxiousness, in the midst of real difficulty, in the midst of despair, we can turn, like the psalmist, to the God of peace and have our hearts and our minds guarded and protected by falling away and breaking apart Lord God, for all of us who are here who are really struggling, I pray that this would resonate well with us. Thank you that we have a communicative relationship with a living God. Thank you that this is true. Thank you that you identify with us all in the things that we struggle with and are anxious with. Heavenly Father, we do also pray this very much for us as a church. Lord God, please, please keep us from breaking apart because of disunity. Heavenly Father, may we as a church read this as it is meant to be read, as the prayer that keeps us unified, to be rejoicing in the Lord and to be asking for his help and to be showing our dependence on him. Lord God, we praise you so much that we can come to you. Thank you that you are with us now. Lord, and we do praise you for all these wonderful things in your mighty name. Amen.